If you're still using fax for prescriptions, you may as well be using messenger pigeons. Evolve to true e-prescribing with Prescribit. It integrates directly into EMRs and protects patient privacy, not to mention no more back-and-forth phone calls and faxes to clarify prescriptions, and no more transmission failures. Ahem. Learn more at prescribeit.ca. Hi, I'm Majola Mali. I'm Blair Bigham. This is the CMAJ Podcast. So in this week's episode, we are looking at nosebleeds, and then we're going to take a wider lens at just bleeding disorders in general. So the paper we're looking at today is a practice paper that was recently published in the CMAJ called Five Things to Know About Anterior Epistaxis. We're going to be talking to Dr. Lee Sowerby, co-author and rhinologist in London, Ontario, about things that every physician needs to know to stop anterior nosebleeds. Then we're going to shift focus. We're going to widen the lens a little bit, and we're going to talk to Michelle Scholzberg, the medical director of the Coagulation Laboratory at St. Michael's Hospital. She's a hematologist, and she's going to get more into the weeds around easy bleeding. So, Jola, you're a surgeon. I'm an emergency doctor. We both see bleeding. I actually don't see bleeding. I have, like, zero blood loss. You cause bleeding, Jola. <laughs> no, I don't. Ask anesthesia what my blood loss is. Ooh. Less than 50. Nice. Let's jump right into it. Dr. Lee Sowerby is a rhinologist and associate professor at the Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry in London, Ontario. He's the co-author of Five Things to Know About Anterior Epistaxis and CMAJ. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Let's get right to it. What is the right way to treat a nosebleed? So I think one of the most amazing misconceptions that has perpetuated as an old wives' tale is to put pressure on the nasal bones. I honestly... I. I can't believe how many people that I see who come in and demonstrate to me that they are putting pressure on their nasal bones when they're trying to stop a nosebleed. Um, it's one of those old wives' tales that has just persisted in spite of our best efforts as a specialty to to correct. So the initial first aid management for nosebleeds should be pinching the nasal ala, so right at the root of the nose where the nostrils meet the face, firmly with the head tipped forward, so nose facing the floor for 10 minutes. And it's amazing how much that simple intervention can actually stop patients from needing to come in for medical care. So how many patients actually that just doing the direct pressure would resolve the nosebleed? Well, it's more about are they able to stop the current bleed and then that can stop patients from needing to come in and require care. There was a study done uh, in the 90s that was looking at that. And what they found is that just by simply providing patients with a handout with those directions, they were able to reduce the number of repeat emergency visits by 25%. Oh, wow. That's impressive. And what happens if you do the direct pressure and you don't stop the bleed? Then you got to come in. Is cauterizing the blood vessel something like a primary doc can do? Or is that more like ER or ENT? Honestly, I think anybody can. And I think the biggest misconception with nosebleeds is that the blood is just spewing from this hole in the face. <laughs> and when you think about what's happening with a nosebleed, at least like with an initial onset where all of a sudden it's like, oh, hey, my nose is bleeding. There is one blood vessel in that nose that is opened. And if you can identify where that vessel is bleeding from, it's quite easy to intervene to stop the bleeding, either with direct pressure with vasoconstriction, so either with epinephrine or with a decongestant, or with silver nitrate. But to be able to find that vessel, 
you got to look. And that's the thing I think a lot of people feel it's like, you know, the nose is a black box. They don't want to look or they don't have the tools that are available. But pretty much in every physician's office has an otoscope. And you can take that otoscope, put a cap on it and put it in someone's nose. And you'd be amazed actually at how much you can see with that. You know, if somebody's actively bleeding, it becomes a little bit harder, but it's enough of a light that you can get at least some visualization. Um, I find, you know, when somebody's bleeding, if you have them tip their head forward so their nose is facing the floor, very mm-hmm. quickly you can tell which side is the side where the bleeding is coming from. Um, you can have them blow their nose so that they actually blow the clot out, which allows for better visualization as well. And then once that's done, ideally, if you're in the emergency room or you're in a hospital, you can access a headlight. Um, pretty much every hospital has either like a nasal packing tray or um, an, an epistaxis tray that will have a nasal speculum and you can look. And once you look, then you can just apply a little bit of decongestion. And it's amazing how often you can see it. If you can see it, you can cauterize it. Lee, when is the appropriate time for a primary care physician or an emergency physician then to escalate to ENT to come down to the emergency department and help out with the management of a nosebleed? You know, I think it in the... Um, it really depends on what you have available to you. And so I, I fully empathize with our colleagues who are working in the community that just simply may not have the tools that you need. Um, a lot of primary care providers do have a silver nitrate in their office. And so obviously, if you can see it, it can help. But it really is a lot easier if you do have some decongestant to be able to visualize where that bleeding is coming from. Um, taking a look with the speculum, if the nose isn't actively bleeding, it makes it a lot easier to see. Um, And so, yeah, if you're in your office and you're seeing somebody who's having an active bleed and you don't have the tools, that's when you need to send them in. Much like, you know, if somebody's managing a nosebleed in the emergency room, pretty much all of our emergency medicine colleagues are quite comfortable with the initial packing attempts. And uh, they've tried to look, they've seen, they can't really see anything, or maybe they've tried cautery, their nose is still bleeding. That would be the time. Um, Once they've put a pack in, if the patient's still bleeding through the pack that's placed, that's when they then... Um, would call us for us to come and visualize. Some of the hardest patients, and again, we're seeing this much more lately, I would say in the last five to 10 years, just with all of the the anticoagulants that are available, is there's uh, a lot more patients that present that end up bleeding through packs because they just are coagulopathic. And those do become harder to manage. Those are ones that are sometimes using an absorbable pack isn't a good idea because if a non-absorbable pack goes in, the non-absorbable pack has to come out. <laughs> And sometimes when that pack comes out, the nose bleeds again. And just by virtue of placing a pack, it causes trauma in the nose. And so those are patients where if you have a choice, using a pack like a rapid rhino would be a great idea because it has a carboxymethylcellulose on the outside of it. So Mm -hmm. when that pack's in there for two days, you can take the balloon out and it's much more atraumatic when it comes out than a Miracel is. We'll sometimes use these like Surgicel and gel foam kind of packs that go in that again same sort of thing it provides a scaffold for clot that can just stay and doesn't have to get pulled out so once you've stopped the bleeding should you hold antiplatelets or anticoagulants for a certain amount of time that's a great question and i think it really really depends on what the underlying um indication is for the anticoagulation somebody who's at a high risk of having a clot or a stroke that's somebody who probably the nosebleed is the lesser of two evils. And so we've seen that with dermatologic surgery and that the risk of holding anticoagulation for patients undergoing a primary excision of having a stroke is actually higher than it is for them just staying on those medications. And so for somebody who's really having a lot of issues with nosebleeds, 
holding it for 24 to 48 hours if they can would be a great idea to allow the clot to stabilize. I think that's there's more confidence in kind of having them restart if they've had some sort of definitive management. So if they've had cauterization applied, then I'm more confident with that patient starting back on their anticoagulants right away. Whereas somebody who's had a bunch of packing placed in their nose, the packs removed and they're not bleeding, but no discrete site of bleeding was identified, that's somebody where it made more sense to hold them. Switching patients to the DOACs is probably better than it is on, on warfarin. Um, and so that's something where we are seeing less maybe than we did before. Um, I had one patient who came in once who we couldn't explain why their INR was four and it turned out they were making grapefruit wine. And so <laughs> switching to the DOACs <laughs> avoids, yeah. avoids things like grapefruit wine. <laughs> yes. Um, how, what, why are some people more prone to repeated nosebleeds than others? There's, there definitely is some anatomical factors that are at play. Some people, as we get older, the mucosa in the nose thins. And so those vessels are, are closer to the surface. So it's easier for you to have trauma to that area. There is an association with hypertension. It's not necessarily causation, but there's an association. And so patients who have hypertension are one of those that often can run into issues as well. But yeah, it, it ends up being a super common issue. We kind of see like there's two that's bimodal. It's more common in when people are under the age of like 12 or so. And kids, you can think of the kid who always had that little nosebleed and stuff. And they have very prominent vessels in the anterior septum. And then again, we see that another bimodal peak later on as people get up into their 60s and 70s. So what directions should physicians give patients before they discharge them? So there's there's actually published evidence that if we can correct the first aid measures, we can reduce the return visits to the emergency room. I think that's really important. I think the other thing is to encourage patients to not pick at their nose. This is a temptation is to try and pick at the crusts that are in there. Well, that crust's a scab. You pick the scab off, it's going to bleed. Um, Vaseline is helpful to keep things nice and moist, as is a saline spray. I will often tell patients to have a decongestant like Ochevin or Dristan. I counsel them that they need to be careful about using them for more than two days in a row because you don't want to get rhinus medicamentosa. But that's something where if the patient's bleeding, they can expectorate the clot by blowing it out and then follow that up with some decongestant spray. And that vasoconstriction will help with keeping them out of the hospital. Lee, for people who see this relatively often. It is kind of frustrating that people still seem to have these old notions of, of ways to fix their nosebleeds that just aren't working. Is there any, is there any quantum leap here to, to get everybody on the same page? Is there anything that you guys have seen or tried that seems to be particularly effective? So I think it starts, it starts at, the, at the beginning, right? And so I, I've taken on our Apisaxis lectures at the UME level. I have them all demonstrate where they would apply pressure when they're having a nosebleed or if they were instructing a patient to do it. And it's great watching them like they're like looking around, looking at each other, being like, OK, am I doing it right? Are you doing it right? Which to me says that there's some uncertainty out there, right? Um, there was a study that was just repeated by one of my co-authors, Dr. Baitzi, in, in Israel, looking at the knowledge among primary care providers there. And they found very similar things. So it's not just an an issue that's isolated to Canada. I saw another one, uh, I was actually just asked to be a reviewer just recently for a similar study that surveyed 
schools in Saudi Arabia. So there's there's some interest out there in kind of bringing this to light and highlighting what the correct way of, of addressing these from a first aid measure is. And then again, the next step, I think, is in improving that comfort at the primary care level and the emergency room level by kind of breaking down the barriers of thinking of it as a black box, but thinking of it as there is a vessel bleeding. If I can find the vessel bleeding, I can stop the bleeding. Um, Joel, that should speak to your Right to the to the heart of the of the general surgeon in you, right? Let's put a clip yes. on it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much. This has been really great. Uh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. And I'm always open to questions about nosebleeds if anybody uh, wants to fire me an email. I've been trying to find a pun to finish with that has to do with nose and I can't figure one out. Nose it all, right? Oh, oh now we nose it all. I'm going to use that in our closing. <laughs> well, thank you for that. Coming up after the break, we're going to move beyond nosebleeds, and we're going to look at all types of bleeding and when it should really worry you. If you're still using facts for prescriptions, you may as well be using messenger pigeons. Evolved to true e-prescribing with Prescribit. It integrates directly into EMRs and protects patient privacy, not to mention no more back-and-forth phone calls and faxes to clarify prescriptions, and no more transmission failures. Ahem. <laughs> Learn more at prescribeit.ca. Now that we've explored how to manage bleeding that's relatively easy to resolve, what about those other cases that can be more challenging? Dr. Michelle Schulzberg is the Division Head of Hematology Oncology and the Medical Director of the Coagulation Lab at St. Michael's Hospital. She's been the co-author of two practice articles in CMAJ focused on managing bleeding patients. Michelle, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Blair. So, Michelle, most nosebleeds do stop on their own, and a lot of them are pretty easily explainable, either through your physical exam, maybe it's a change of seasons, people have really dry noses, or maybe they're on an antiplatelet or anticoagulant. But sometimes bleeding can be harder to stop, or there's really no precipitating factor. Tell us about the proportion of cases where bleeding doesn't resolve that easily. This is a great question. And for sure, my answer is going to be hugely biased because I manage <laughs> such a hyper-specialized patient population. Um, so at St. Mike's, we have the largest Canadian bleeding disorders program. And so we manage patients with many different types of inherited and acquired bleeding disorders. So my perspective is therefore not going to be typical of the emergency department physician or a family physician who's probably going to see the majority of cases of patients with nosebleeds. The patients that I end up seeing are the ones that are not responding to initial lines of therapy. So I would say that that's probably pretty rare. And I'm likely only seeing a minority of patients, probably less than 10%, if that. Tell me a little bit about the diagnoses or the causes of easy bruising and easy bleeding. Take me back to medical school and remind me about the diagnoses that are sort of red flags or more worrisome, the people who end up in your clinic. So... The most common inherited bleeding disorder is von Willebrand disease. After that, platelet function disorders are most common. And then we start moving into the domain of the hemophilias. Hemophilia A being more common than hemophilia B. Then we're moving into factor 11 deficiency, factor 7 deficiency, and down the line to more rare clotting factor deficiencies. So it's really important to note that von Willebrand disease, a disorder that was named after a Finnish physician, Dr. Eric von Willebrand, who was the first to identify um, a family of individuals with a really extensive bleeding phenotype, 
is the most common. And the reason why I'm emphasizing the fact that uh, the disorder is named after someone is that oftentimes in medicine, we are sort of predisposed to think that disorders that are named after people are really, really rare. That is not the case with this condition. It is the most common uh, inherited bleeding disorder and affects um, about 36,000 Canadians. And that's compared to about 4,000 Canadians with hemophilia A and B combined. So if we're thinking about bleeding disorders, VWD should be top of list. The trouble is, is that vulnerable brain disease is so complicated that people often forget about it because it's tricky, hard to diagnose, et cetera. So how do we explore bleeding in patients with uh, possible inherited bleeding disorders? Well, it starts first by asking the questions properly and without bias. So the most common um, manifestations of bleeding disorders in women is uh, heavy vaginal bleeding in the form of heavy menstrual bleeding or postpartum hemorrhage. And there's a lot of stigma surrounding uh, the discussion of vaginal blood loss. And we often start the conversation with, do you have heavy menstrual bleeding? And if a woman or person who menstruates says, no, it's normal, then we're going to assume that they are a good judge of that. And if a person has bled heavily their entire lives, and because we've shown that patients' uh, conception of bleeding and conception of normal is heavily influenced by their family's generational history of bleeding, that they're even less likely to say that it's abnormal if their mother, their sister, their aunts, their grandmothers all had excessive vaginal bleeding. So it starts with very open-ended questions and uh, assuming that the patient is not necessarily the best judge of normal versus abnormal. And so the way to go through a bleeding history with patients is to use uh, one of many validated bleeding assessment tools or BATS. These are bleeding questionnaires that will take you through a standardized bleeding history. And the more medical or surgical intervention that a patient requires to control bleeding in a given category. So for example, if a patient with epistaxis or nosebleeds required repeated cauterization or blood transfusions, they're going to get more points. And then all of those points are going to be added up. You're going to get a summative score at the end. You're going to use the interpretation key of the given bleeding assessment tool, and that will help you determine the pretest probability of an inherited bleeding disorder and determine whether or not you should send the patient to a specialist for additional testing. The reason why I'm emphasizing that is because coagulation testing is really hyper-specialized and really um, affected by a lot of variables that just um, are affected by things such as mishandling the sample or not preserving the cold chain of the sample. So you really want to ideally have the sample tested at the same site that the blood is being drawn. So this is fascinating. I want to dig more into this. I'm an emergency doctor. Imagine that sometime in my life, I'm going to say, oh, does this person have von Willebrand disease? So should I should I send any blood work off other than check their hemoglobin? Like what is the workup that I should do or that a family doctor or a surgeon maybe should do when they go, oh, geez, this sounds like this person bleeds easily. And I'm going to split this into two parts. First of all, maybe without going over an entire BAT with us, maybe you could just give us two or three more examples of like really high yield questions that everyone should know to ask. And then is there any blood work that I should be sending off? Because I can imagine with the way our healthcare system is now, if I send easy bleeding to a hematologist, I don't know, maybe it could take four or eight weeks before they get seen. This is the most important question to ask, Blair. The tricky part about 
sending off coagulation testing is that we've all got such information and laboratory test overload and fatigue that what often happens is either people are excessively ordering a test and uh, ordering it uh, in an unselected fashion, like for people who don't necessarily need it. And so then the results become completely unhelpful or people are so exhausted by reviewing so many lab tests as we all are that when something's abnormal, they don't even acknowledge it or recognize it. And then a further appropriate workup isn't Mm -hmm. done. And the really rough thing about coagulation tests is that (laughs) the truth about them is that they can either herald nothing at all, something completely medically insignificant or something potentially life-threatening. And so because we're dealing with the balance of two such massive extremes, it's really hard for clinicians to become comfortable with the ordering and interpretation of these tests. And it's important to acknowledge that not every doc can or should be an expert in coagulation. It's super specialized. But we do need to move away from the concept of the INR and PTT being considered routine. So tell There's me, nothing routine about that. Tell me more about INR-PTT yeah. because I, I can almost guarantee you that if someone comes to my emergency department and triages as a nosebleed, somebody somewhere along the lines, be it the triage nurse or the emergency doctor, someone's going to order uh, a blue top, right? There's going to be an INR and an APTT yeah. done on that person. I can almost guarantee it. Tell us more. Convince me why that's a waste of money and time. So in the emergency department setting, it is not a waste of time. Okay. Meaning you have a patient that's presenting with a bleeding complaint at the time of their, you know, of their assessment. That is a very specific type of patient. And in that patient, you want to order an INR and a PTT because it's possible, A, that their warfarin that they may be on is super therapeutic, right? So the INR has been originally developed and validated to monitor vitamin K antagonist mm-hmm. therapy in steady state, period, right? That's that's where its utility starts and ends. The PTT has been used as a screen for preoperative hemophilia in patients at high risk of hemophilia, meaning the brother of somebody who has hemophilia. Right. That is very different than doing screening, PTT, and INR testing in an unselected patient population preoperatively with no bleeding ah, history. okay. So the patients that you're seeing, you're saying, well, well, somebody's presenting with bleeding. Different story. Order the tests, right? Why in particular? Because if you have an elderly patient that's presenting with really severe bleeding and the PTT is abnormal, that could herald a really life-threatening condition called acquired hemophilia that is exceedingly, exceedingly at high risk of death. Um, and, and really, really substantial morbidity, if not death. So absolutely somebody manifests with bleeding. Somebody's coming in, uh, after a massive trauma, somebody's coming in with a possible stroke where you may consider thrombolysis. Um, these are all reasons to order the PTPTT. They're quick, they're dirty. You have them on hand, but in that setting, if they come back as normal, it doesn't rule out a bleeding disorder. Meaning the sensitivity of these tests, and I'm going to blow your mind for a second, is under 2%. The sensitivity. Exactly. Why would, okay, <laughs> exactly. just a, a sidebar, like a selfish question. Uh, so like preoperatively, do we need to be doing INR, APTT on patients? So great question. The answer there is that's a totally different use of the tests, right? So there you're using it in an unselected patient population they may or may not have a bleeding history because you may or may not have talked to them about their bleeding history. I 100% did not talk to them about their bleeding history. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That is like a given. I, yeah. 
every patient says, oh, I bruise easily. Oh, I bleed for a long time. Or I'm a quick healer. I'm like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) But this is hilarious. And so this is the risk of these tests in that as clinicians, and this isn't just unique to the coagulation test, that we often use blood testing as a surrogate for the history, Mm. right? And for bleeding, it's no wonder why people are doing that. It's because getting a good bleeding history is really hard and it takes time, right? So, I mean, do you have an extra 30 minutes to administer, you know, a really effective bleeding assessment tool? Absolutely not, right? So one thing that we're actually doing at St. Mike's, at Sunnybrook and at Kingston General Hospital is we're running a large prospective cohort study that's evaluating a self-bat, a patient-administered bleeding assessment tool to determine its predictive accuracy in perioperative bleeding, the score to see if that predicts future bleeding. And so that would be the holy grail, right? Imagine if you could just give that to all your patients, they fill it out and you're like, oh, I know who to test and I know who Mm -hmm. not to test. Because a normal PTPTT, whether it be in the patient presenting to the emergency department with bleeding or whether in the preoperative setting, if normal, does not rule out a bleeding disorder. And that's because von Willebrand disease is essentially not addressed at all by the PTT, because right. most patients have the most mild form where the PTT is actually normal. So Michelle, I just want so, to distill this down yeah. for our listeners. First of all, if someone's acutely bleeding, I can send off an INR and PTT, but I don't need to send off any other fancy stuff, even when their story is a little suspicious. That, that, those t- special tests should be done by a hematologist. You and got number it. two, exactly. if they're not bleeding and I just wonder, oh, I wonder if they have a bleeding disorder, I'm going to operate on them tomorrow. I should not be doing a PTT INR. I should instead be interviewing them, asking them some bleeding questions, ideally using a validated score. And if that's positive, then I need to talk to a hematologist. Exactly right. And you were asking me, Blair, earlier, what tests, if any, should I send on a patient where I do suspect a bleeding history that's, you know, suggestive of an underlying disorder? Mm-hmm. Please send a CBC and ferritin because the hemoglobin and the ferritin is what's going to help us triage the referral best. Got it. What about a retic count? Is that ever helpful? As a hematologist, of course. <laughs> I, you know, and it's it's I run try on to the order tests test, that help my course. consultants. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. It's always helpful. But to be honest, if I, if I see a referral, let's say for, you know, a patient who has heavy menstrual bleeding and their hemoglobin is 65, that's going to help me see that patient urgently versus the same referral, but with a hemoglobin of 145. Got it. Okay. We should never expect non-specialists to have access or to be able to interpret these fancy tests. And uh, we really should be drawing the blood and testing them on site because there's a huge risk of false negatives and false positives if we send them out. And the majority of labs send them out. I am going to ask our producer to make what you just said appear twice in the podcast because I feel like my entire (laughs) life is specialists expecting me (laughs) to understand their world. (laughs) Emergency (laughs) doctors have it so hard right now because every specialist is so busy. They're just like, well, you just deal with it. And I'm like, but I don't know how. (laughs) (laughs) But sometimes we don't know how either. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, let's get into some, some take home points here. Uh, this has been totally salient and wonderful and very helpful for me. I hope our listeners agree. Uh, but tell me a little bit about a few more big take home messages, um, particularly for family doctors or other people who work with outpatients where they don't have quick access to specialists. Are there any other big messages, uh, key considerations that you'd like to throw out for people who are either working up easy bleeders or maybe managing long-term people who have a diagnosis um, related to a bleeding disorder? 
I'm trying to figure out like the top, top fit messages <laughs> that I want to send. And I'm trying to decide if uh, I should focus on some practical clinical pearls or start breaking down structural sexism in medicine. Oh, sorry, um, what? So um, we're going to go with the latter. Yeah. We'll get to the bullet points, but go on. What do you mean the structural sexism? Well, we know that, but like, how does it, how does it relate to bleeding? So there's, um, as I'm sure we can agree, there are many examples of structural discrimination in medicine. Structural sexism in hematology in particular in bleeding disorders is rampant. So, um, and this is largely because of normalization of heavy vaginal bleeding that occurs in women or people who menstruate um, based on, on, you know, all of those reasons that I provided earlier and the way that they interpret their experiences and the way that they uh, contextualize their family's experiences as well. And also cultural stigma that is rampant, irrespective of what your racial or ethnic background is. Women don't talk about their periods. I don't talk about my period. I'm a hematologist who focuses on bleeding disorders and women's <laughs> health. And I can honestly count on one finger the amount of times that I've had a vague conversation with someone about my period. So women don't talk about it when we're conditioned not to talk about it. And we're conditioned to be embarrassed about our periods. And um, heavy vaginal bleeding or heavy menstrual bleeding affects uh, essentially 95% of women with the most common bleeding disorders von Willebrand disease, but 65, 60, up to 65% of all women, period. So mm. heavy vaginal bleeding and the resultant iron deficiency that's essentially universal is the original pandemic. And it is rampant among women of reproductive age. Of course, I'm using the word women. It's not meant to be exclusive to anyone. I'm referring to anyone who has the anatomical capacity to menstruate. Um, and we know that individuals of lower socioeconomic status are less likely to be tested and therefore treated. And they're at higher risk of iron deficiency. Mm. So iron deficiency is an important thing because iron deficiency, even in the absence of anemia, um, not only affects, you know, uh, your energy level, your exercise tolerance, but it also diminishes IQ because it uh, decreases attention and memory. Wow. And uh, it's been shown all of these things to decrease health-related quality of life in individuals with iron deficiency, even in the absence of anemia. Most importantly, if you treat it, it resolves. Wait a minute. If you so have iron if, deficiency but a normal hemoglobin count, you still have sequelae? Correct. So, of course, as a hematologist, I'm biased to think about the importance of iron for the red blood cell. But iron is important for myoglobin. Iron is important for a number of metabolic enzymes in our body, including cytochrome enzymes, and iron's even important for the generation of ATP. Hmm. So iron makes people, iron deficiency makes people feel really, really bad, even in the absence of anemia. And just to give you an example of, you know, two neuropsychological manifestations of iron deficiency, even in the absence of anemia, restless leg syndrome and PICO, which is the urge to eat inedible things, which includes ice. How many women have you heard over your lifetime that have said, oh, when I was pregnant, I couldn't stop eating ice. That's it's, it's unaddressed iron deficiency. Wow. And so all of this, yeah, so all of this leads to um, unaddressed, decreased health-related quality of life, lower IQ amongst women of reproductive age, which are, you know, arguably potentially the most productive years in a woman's life. And this leads to a vicious and unaddressed oppressive circle. 
And so the women, of course, who are at higher risk are those that are at intersections, right, where they have additional risk factors for iron deficiency, including individuals of visible minorities and individuals of lower socioeconomic status. So um, this is a huge example of an underprioritized area in medicine. And I'll give you two structural examples of how we consciously contribute to this form of structural discrimination. Number one, the ferritin reference intervals are based on extremely flawed data at very high risk of bias, Mm. whereby we were sampling individuals who were presumed healthy, apparently healthy, without talking to them about their menstrual blood loss, about other risk factors for iron deficiency. Therefore, the normal range of ferritin in women in many labs is described as anything that is above 8, 9, 10 But we know, based on good quality evidence, that a ferritin below 30, in fact, below 50, is associated with iron deficiency, Mm. i.e. diminished iron stores in the bone marrow and bone marrow biopsy, which is the gold standard. And this further extends to additional issues. So there are, as you know, there are sex-based thresholds for the definition of anemia, Mm -hmm. right? Men less than 130, women less than 120. This is according to the WHO. And these are based on four published reports and one set of unpublished data. This was published in the end of the 1960s. Very high risk of bias. Wait a very minute. Very poor quality data. I think data. I see where this is going. Are you serious? The, diff- the yeah. sex-based differences I got taught in med school are just because they used a population of women who were bleeding? Yes. What? A population of women who have iron deficiency anemia. So our whole conceptualize and like we're just talking about like basic stuff sorry we started talking about epistaxis and now we're talking about oh, this. we are way but, past epistaxis at this okay. point <laughs> <laughs> but i mean to me it's so important uh in medicine and especially as a laboratorian to question these dogmatic truths that we accept right when the lab test comes up on a screen as a clinician it's like god's spoken word has fallen right you should always question the results that you're seeing and you should question the reference intervals and these concepts of normal, right? It all depends on the patient, po- or not the patient, it all depends on the population of individuals that you sample. And so we were sampling women who had unaddressed iron deficiency in both the definition of the normal reference interval for ferritin as well as the normal reference interval for hemoglobin. So iron deficiency anemia, okay, anemia, not just iron deficiency, affects more than a third of the world's population. And that's a massive underestimate. Wow. It is one of the leading causes of disability worldwide. And it's not addressed. So aren't you shocked that we're not having these massive conferences talking about how we can collectively address iron deficiency anemia and iron deficiency in, for example, Canada? Right. No. You've been to that conference? No, I haven't been to that one. I mean, I talk about this stuff, but like it's that, again, is an example of structural discrimination. It's time to address it. So actually in Ontario, very soon in partnership with three large commercial laboratories, we're changing the ferritin reference interval. Wow. This is fascinating stuff. And that's important. Is, yeah. I'm Now I'm going to make an appointment with my family doctor uh, to get my son checked out because <laughs> I'm like, oh, maybe this is why I'm tired. Doesn't it make you wonder exactly. like, exactly. you know, numbers are either black or red on the screen, right? And it just makes you mm-hmm. wonder what other black numbers are actually just like poorly developed as, you know, normal. Creatinine. Exactly. Creatinine, yeah. A hundred percent. Creatinine, absolute neutrophil count. 
Oh, right? oh my God. So another example, this concept of benign ethnic neutropenia. You know, there was a recent article that was published. We are making non being non-white a disorder. It's normal amongst individuals who are Black and of Middle Eastern descent. So we have to be very careful about the truths that we incorporate right. in, you know, our medical vernacular and what we consider normal versus abnormal. And Blair, you said the key there, we have a huge opportunity with the dissemination, dissemination of lab test results to use the flag, the red or the dark black flag right. that comes up on the lab test is abnormal. <clears throat> so if we're not flagging things as abnormal, then you are losing an opportunity to treat a patient, which is more relevant now than ever because of virtual care and us, you know, being less connected to our patients and volumes being higher than ever. I mean, I'm, I review a stack of test results for thousands of people. I, I have to rely on those flags to help, you know, cue my eye to go, oh, what's going on there? And I'm sure you must feel the same way. Absolutely. Before you go, I just want to pin you down. I want your top three questions that I should ask someone that would make you go, ah, this person needs a hematologist. Oh my gosh, this is so, that's such a good question for me. Uh, nobody's ever asked me that. Because let's be um, honest, I'm not going to go and download a bat and I'm never going to use it in the emergency department. <laughs> no offense. It's yeah. just not going to no, happen. No, I get it. 100% get it. 100% get it. Um, can I make it different if it's a man or a woman? Uh, sure. Yeah, let's do it <laughs> okay. that way. <laughs> okay. Okay. So for a woman, I would ask her if on the heaviest days of her menstrual bleeding, if she has to change a pad or tampon more than five or six times a day um, because she's afraid that she's going to have an accident if she doesn't. Um, and if you elicit that, yes, it's heavy, and if she has to double up a pad or tampon, that's another cue. And if she passes clots, it's another cue. Um, then you want you need to quickly follow up with, has that always been the way that your periods have been? So if you oh. gauge that it's it's heavy, you have to say, has that been forever? Or is that recent a recent change? Because a woman who's had heavy menstrual bleeding from the onset of menarche is an independent predictor of a bleeding disorder, irrespective of the score on the bat. Okay. The second question is... Have you ever had a surgical procedure? And I would give an example of like a dental extraction and you've had to represent afterwards, you know, to see the surgeon or dentist because you've had ongoing bleeding. Okay. And then how does that change for men? So for men, I would ask about nosebleeds and I've asked if they've ever had an, I would ask if they've ever had a nosebleed that's lasted longer than 10 minutes. Okay. And another key question about the nosebleeds is it, is it one nostril or both? Oh, okay. So yeah, the one nostril bit implies something anatomical. The both implies something systemic. Very interesting. We'll call that the... Uh, That's so cool. Schulzberg rapid bat. <laughs> <laughs> Michelle, thank you so much for taking time with us. I'm sorry that we can't talk longer, but maybe we'll have you on some other time. Sounds great. Thank you both so thank much. Thank you. Dr. Michelle Schulzberg is Division Head of Hematology Oncology and the Medical Director of the Coagulation Laboratory at St. Michael's Hospital. Well, Jola, so much for a completely clinical topic for this week's episode. Wow. I know. I'm, I'm pretty sure um, people who are listening are just like, how did we go from talking about 
nosebleeds and bleeding disorder to talk about the structural discrimination and sexism within um, hematology. So some really good takeaways, Jola, uh, for everyday practice from both Lee and from Michelle. Uh, Things like how to properly coach people to stop a nosebleed, pinching below the nasal bone, really paying attention to looking up the nose and seeing if you can find anything to target, making sure you pack the nose properly. And then, of course, Michelle's tips around asking the right questions and maybe rethinking your use of coagulation tests, even common ones like INR. Both of their suggestions, Lee and Michelle, were very practical and things that are very quick to do. Especially Michelle's questions, those three questions probably have a higher yield than what we order in terms of doing INR and PTT on every patient because they really actually give us insight into whether or not this person could have a complication from bleeding. That's it for this week's episode of the CMAJ podcast. Thanks so much for listening. We'd love it if you could like or share our podcast wherever it is you download your audio to keep the conversation going. Every couple weeks, we seem to have these amazing interviews with Canadian physicians that are really mind-blowing, and we'd love to just get the message out there. I'm Blair Bigham. I'm Mojala Amale. Until next time, be well.